how very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. He said, Jesus himself said, the Son of God. In this law, he said, dwelleth all the law and all the prophets. Childish manner, Scott and I impishly danced around his body before he was dead. Just strangely enough, it was a rush, a teenager's rush. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Yeah! Hello, strangers. Welcome to a new episode of Strange Talk Podcast. Today's episode is going to be somewhat a little different. Um, I decided to kind of change it up. I'm not doing a This Week in Crime episode because of the topic that I'm going to be covering. Um, it's an interesting topic, and I it's one that's not really widely known. And I think up until like maybe two or three years, maybe even a year ago, it's barely being taught in history books. It was actually erased from history, and that's an event that happened a long time ago, back in 1921, that a lot a lot of people didn't even want to talk about because they just wanted to erase it from history and act like it never even happened. And fortunately, you know, that's not the right thing to do. So I decided, you know, let's let's talk about it. Maybe you haven't heard of it. Maybe you have heard of it. But I decided to talk about that. So without further ado, let's jump into the case. One of the worst race massacres in the nation's history occurred in Tulsa, Oklahoma, almost over 100 years ago in 1921. This shameful massacre is hardly talked about. It's not even acknowledged in history books. In honor of Black History Month, today's episode is about the Greenwood Massacre. The massacre itself only lasted a few hours, but the effects of it are still felt to this very day. Tulsa of 1921 was a humming, bustling place that reveled in the titled oil capital of the world. It had earned the name by making itself into the financial, manufacturing, and transportation hub of the great mid-continent oil fields surrounding it. From barely 1,000 inhabitants in 1898, it had grown to more than 72,000. Tulsa County's population was about 110,000, making it the most densely populated and fastest growing country in the state. Most Tulsans were native-born and white. A surprisingly small number, fewer than a thousand, identified themselves as American Indians. About 9,000 were black, with most of them living in the community centered on Greenwood Avenue, northeast of downtown Tulsa. Most black Tulsans worked as laborers and domestics, but as a, but a substantial were teachers, lawyers, doctors, and other professionals. Tulsa, like the rest of Oklahoma, was racially segregated. Greenwood had its own schools, its own post office substation, its own police station, and its own branch library. It also had its own thriving commercial di district, which Booker T. Washington had called the Black Wall Street of America. Only two decades earlier, Tulsa had barely mustered the 1,000 inhabitants necessary for incorporation. Two decades before that, it did not exist at all. Tulasi, or Old Town, a Lochapoke Creek village established in the 1830s near present-day 18th Street and Cheyenne Avenue, disappeared during the Civil War. 
1879, the first official use of the name Tulsa appeared on a U.S. post office operating out of the Perryman Ranch headquarters near present-day 41st Street and Trenton Avenue. Modern Tulsa, though, began in 1882, when a small tent city sprang up around Atlantic and Pacific Railroad, where it met the Arkansas River. A Southern Methodist minister named Harold Cook touched on underlying racial tension. An open proponent of vigilantism and unbashed racist, Cook complained bitterly of blacks and whites drinking and dancing together in roadhouses and speakeasies, and of black porters in cheap hotels acting as agents for white prostitutes. In Tulsa, as in the rest of Oklahoma and throughout the United States, race was an important issue. Many states, including Oklahoma, tried to keep blacks from voting and restricted their activities, sometimes through so-called Jim Crow laws, and sometimes through intimidation. Increasingly, blacks resisted discrimination. From Washington, D.C. to Chicago to the rural Arkansas Delta, racial conflict de degenerated into deadly and armed violence. Though far from ideal, Tulsa was considered a better place than most for blacks. Besides thriving business district, Greenwood attracted a relatively large number of doctors, lawyers, and teachers. Its schools, though poorly funded, were exceptional. The Tulsa Star, a lively weekly newspaper edited by A.J. Smitherman, promoted independence and unity and exhorted blacks to stand up for their rights. Three weeks before the riot, a middle-aged black couple was arrested in Tulsa for refusing to sit in the back of a streetcar. They were fined $10. In today's money, that would be $143. Greenwood is a bustling district and a safe haven for African Americans trying to live the American dream. However, unbeknownst to everyone living in Greenwood, a fire of violence would soon burst. It only needed a spark to ignite it. On Monday, May 30th, 1921, a young black man named Dick Rowland got onto an elevator on the third floor of the Drexel building at 319 South Main Street. For some reason, he came into contact with Sarah Page, the white elevator operator, and Page cried out. Her cry was heard by a store clerk who called police. The Drexel building at 319 South Main Street was four stories tall. Ren Renberg's department store occupied the first two floors with offices and small businesses upstairs. The building was probably quiet that morning. It was Memorial Day and most downtown stores, including Renberg's, were closed. Rain dampened the holiday activities, including a parade. Although Dick Rowland seems to have been fairly well known, his true identity is a bit of a mystery. He is generally identified as the son of Dave and Alice, Ollie Rowland, who operated a boarding house in the Piero building on East Archer Street. Some sources, though, say his name was actually John or Johnny Rowland, and that he was the adopted son or even grandson of Dave Rowland. Damien Rowland, Dave and Alice's daughter, said in, in a 1972 interview that she had taken in a young Johnny while living in Veneta and that he had been born in Arkansas. The 1920 census listing for Rowland household includes an adopted son named John who had been born in Texas. Adding to the uncertainty is a slight age discrepancy. The census recorded John Rowland's age as 16 in 1920. Dick Rowland's age when he was arrested a year later was given as 19. Almost nothing is known of Sarah Page. Originally described as a 17-year-old orphan working her way through business college, 
It later developed that she may have been as young as 15 and had come to Tulsa from Kansas City while waiting for a divorce to be finalized. Some, including Damie Rowland, have fostered the notion that Paige and Rowland were romantically involved. Though possibly true, the story cannot be verified through contemporary accounts. People who knew Rowland said the elevator did not stop level with the third floor threshold, causing him to trip as he entered the car and fell against Paige. Police later said that whatever happened, it was almost certainly not intentional. In any case, Paige's cries caught the attention of a Renberg's employee who apparently summoned police. Roland fled, but Paige and the clerk, if not actually naming the man she said attacked her, supplied enough of a description that authorities had no difficulty locating him. Roland's arrest the next morning was reported in a front page story in that afternoon's Tulsa Tribune. Headlined, Nab Negro for Attacking Girl and Elevator. The somewhat sensational account reported, accurately if perhaps imprudently, that Roland was to be charged with attempted assault. It said Roland scratched Paige and tore her clothes. This, in the parlance of the day, was tantamount to an accusation of attempted rape. The mere suggestion of attempted assault, when it involved a white woman, had in the past triggered gruesome lynchings from Duluth, Minnesota, to the Florida swamps. Some sources say the Tribune also published an editorial under the headline To Lynch Negro Tonight. This is possible, but does not seem likely. For one, the Tribune actually editorialized against lynching, but before, both before and after the riot. A call for vigilante justice would have been almost inconceivably inconsistent. Also, no such editorial has ever been found. This in itself does not prove one didn't exist, though. The only known copies of May 31, 1921, Tribune, were an early state edition, essentially a reprint of the previous day's last edition, and therefore of no use, and a microfilm image of a file copy made in the 1940s. The front page arrest story had been torn from this paper, and part of the back page, the editorial page, was missing. This has led to speculation that the inflammatory editorial was torn out along with the arrest story. Again, this is possible, but not probable. A surviving state edition of the June 1st, 1921, the state edition being a virtual reprint of the previous day's last edition, shows the arrest story on the front page. The space where the missing editorial would have been is a piece on European disarmament. The editorials could have been switched, but a more likely explanation is that confusion arose over an editorial that appeared on the front page of the June 1st Tribune. This editorial condemned lynching, but included the phrases, a story starts that a negro in the county jail was to be lynched. Finally, and perhaps most tellingly, the Tribune's three loudest critics, the rival Tulsa World, the Oklahoma City Black Dispatch, and the NAACP, never mention an editorial in their attacks on the newspaper. The NAACP's Walter White blamed the Tribune's use of the word assault. The Black Dispatch reprinted the May 31st arrest story under the headline, The False Story Which Set Tulsa on Fire, on June 1st, and tweaked the Tribune for its colored account of the elevator incident. Page, who seems to have fled the city on June 1st, subsequently wrote to the county attorney, asking that the charges against Roland to be dropped. The case was dismissed at the end of September. Just how much the Tribune story actually contributed to what followed has been debated since the day it appeared. 
Police Chief John Gustafson and Police Commissioner J.M. Atkinson minimized its importance and word of Roland's arrest almost certainly would have gotten around anyway. But others, including, according to one report, Governor J.B.A. Robertson, thought the story was the root cause of the riot. At 4 p.m., an anonymous caller told Police Commissioner J.M. Atkinson, we are going to lynch that Negro, that black devil who assaulted that girl. Atkinson and Police Chief John Gustafson arranged to move Roland from the city jail to the more secure county lockup on the top floor of the courthouse at 6th Street and Boulder Avenue. Whites attracted by the rumors began gathering at the courthouse until they numbered an estimated 2,000. Atkinson and Gustafson wanted Sheriff Willard McCullough to take Roland out of town, but McCullough refused. He reasoned that Roland was safer in the jail than in a car on an open road somewhere. In this, McCullough was no doubt correct, but there is some indication that Atkinson and Gustafson thought spiriting Roland out of town would disperse the crowd. This was, in fact, a tactic that had worked elsewhere. McCullough, though, was not about to make the same mistake his friend and rival Jim, Woolley, had the previous year, when Woolley had allowed a mob to take murder suspect Roy Belton from the jail. The lynching that ensued essentially ended Woolley's career in elective office and led to McCullough's election as sheriff in November of 1920. Rather than risk trying to sneak Roland out of town, McCullough put him in a cell, ordered the only elevator to the jail disabled, and had six of his deputies barricade themselves inside with the prisoner. McCullough, Deputy Barney Cleaver, and County Commissioner Ira Short remained behind, with McCullough and Cleaver, a black man with a long career in Tulsa law enforcement, trying to disperse the crowd outside. Interestingly, no police seemed to have been in evidence at the courthouse. Some sources say bad relations between the sheriffs and police departments contributed to the failure to control the situation before it got out of hand. Sheriff McCullough said Barney Cleaver, one of his black deputies, was the first to inform him of the threats on Roland's life. Cleaver, the sheriff said, had telephoned to tell him of a call, apparently similar to the one to Atkinson, received at a Northside Motion Picture Theater. This call was taken very seriously. Although Tulsa did not have a history of racial violence, the 1920 lynching victim Roy Belton was actually a white man. It did have more than its share of vigilantism. During World War I, citizens had been harassed and beaten in the name of patriotism, often under color of the local council of defense or the home guard, a local militia organized to replace National Guard units called into active duty. Mary Jones Parrish, a young black woman who had recorded her collections and those of others in a little book called The Events of the Tulsa Disaster, said she went outside on the night of May 31st to find that some of our group were going to give added protection to Roland. At least two earlier contingents of concerned blacks had already visited the courthouse. McCullough and Cleaver assured them that Roland was in good hands and persuaded them to return to Greenwood. The intent of the white crowd is difficult to gauge. Not surprisingly, officials later described the white crowd, at least initially, as more curious than hostile. Without radio, much less television, the only way to see what was happening was to go in person. But the crowd was not completely docile either. McCullough was hooted down, the world reported, when he tried to disperse the whites. Shortly before the shooting started, a band of irate whites presented themselves at the National Guard Armory, about a mile east of the courthouse, demanding weapons and threatening to break in 
when they were denied. In any event, McCullough said the only effort to get at Roland occurred at 8.20pm, when three unidentified white men entered the courthouse. I told them there had been some talk of a lynching, and that they might as well get out for no one was going to get that negro, McCullough said. They went out and got into an auto on Boulder Street and talked loudly and gesticulated, and soon a crowd gathered. It was at that point, McCullough said, that he ordered his men to run the building's lone elevator to the top floor, disable it, and barricade themselves inside the jail. Over the next hour and a half, McCullough received several telephone calls from concerned black leaders, as well as from Major James A. Bell of the local Oklahoma National Guard. McCullough assured all of them the situation was under control. Gustafsson was more concerned, but instead of trying to break up the crowd at the courthouse, he focused his attention on the armed blacks. Eventually, he asked Bell for help to clear the streets of Negroes, but Bell told him the only governor could call the local guardsmen into service. Then, all hell breaks loose. At about 10 p.m., a former county investigator named E.S. McQueen confronted a black man, sometimes identified as Johnny Cole, in front of the courthouse. As McQueen and Cole wrestled over the latter's gun, it discharged. As more than one person observed, all hell broke loose. The crowd scattered. Kala, who had been trying to talk to the crowd, ran for cover in a nearby hotel. Walter Daggs, an oil company manager who lived near the courthouse, was shot and killed, apparently by a stray bullet. 16-year-old Homer Klein was killed as he left the bank where he worked. A.B. Stick, gunned down outside the hotel Tulsa, was reported certain to die but somehow survived. Some sources say a black man was killed at the courthouse, others say not. Eyewitnesses say an unidentified black man was chased down in an alley and killed then said no black fatalities had been reported. News of fatalities and injuries was often fragmentary, secondhand and contradictory. Cleo Schmidt, a white tool dresser, was reported to have been shot at about 8 p.m., well before the riot began. Denied weapons at the National Guard Armory, whites, including some police, broke into Barden Sporting Goods at 510 South Main Street across the street from the courthouse and began taking guns, ammunition, and just about everything else in sight. Police involvement may be partially explained, but the fact that Bardens seems to have sold ammunition to the department on a regular basis. Looting all of it by rampaging whites was reported throughout downtown as shots whizzed haphazardly. Gustafsson called in his entire force, around 65 men, and Atkinson began commissioning special deputies, perhaps as many as 400 of them. Oklahoma National Guard Adjutant General Charles, Charles Barrett told Colonel L.J.F. Rooney, senior office in Tulsa, to make his troops available to local authorities, even though it would be hours before they could be officially called to duty. The first few guardsmen to arrive at police headquarters found the street choked with men in uniform, American Legion members assembled in formation. Although no doubt well-intentioned, their presence initially added to the general chaos. With much promiscuous shooting, it was reported that ex-soldiers marched through the business district. Fortunately, the newspaper said no one was hurt. According to eyewitness accounts, shooting continued for two hours over the city and centered in the north part of the business district until the last of the blacks had retreated into Greenwood. 
The shots at the courthouse touched off two hours of fighting and general chaos in downtown Tulsa, culminating in the return of Roland's intended protectors to the Greenwood area shortly after midnight. The handful of National Guardsmen available, along with some volunteers, tried to get between the combatants along the Frisco Railroad tracks and Detroit Avenue. Although the fighting never completely stopped, it did die down during the early morning hours, causing many to believe the riot was playing itself out. Colonel Al J. F. Rooney, the senior officer among the Tulsa National Guard units, wanted to establish an armed perimeter around Greenwood, but gave up the idea as impractical. We didn't have enough men, Rooney said. It would have taken at least a thousand men to restore any degree of order and to put an effective guard line about the Negro district would have required that many more. At about 1.30 a.m., Major Brian Kirkpatrick of the Oklahoma National Guard finally secured the necessary signatures for the telegram, formally asking Governor J.B.A. Robertson for National Guard assistance. Kirkpatrick's primary obstacle had been getting to Sheriff McCullough, who was still barricaded in the top floor of the courthouse, threatening to shoot anybody who showed himself in the stairwell leading to the jail. A Tulsa World reporter finally persuaded McCullough to let him in with the telegram. Three National Guard units were based in Tulsa, a rifle company, a supply company, and a sanitary, or a medical unit. An artillery unit had been authorized and was in the process of forming but had not been equipped. On the night of May 31st and morning of June 1st, the Tulsa units had perhaps 35 men under arms. This did not include the medical unit, which was employed primarily in caring for wounded and injured blacks. Besides the guardsmen, Rooney had at his disposal, at least in the theory, Several hundred ex-servicemen, most of them members of American Legion posts in Tulsa, Cleveland, Oklahoma, Broken Arrow, and Bistro. Rooney put these men under the command of Major Charles Daly, a Tulsa police inspector and staff officer to Adjutant General Charles Barrett. Restoring order along the Frisco tracks was not the only concern of the authorities. Rumors persisted throughout the night that hundreds of blacks were descending on Tulsa, reinforcing the notion of a Negro uprising, and causing Rooney to stretch his men even thinner. Squads were sent to guard the city power plant and waterworks, while the police, ex-servicemen, and the special deputies roamed the city in auto patrols, rounding up blacks living in servant quarters and outside Greenwood and looking for the supposed invaders. Rooney and about 30 men and officers established themselves along Detroit Avenue on a rise called Standpipe Hill, where gunfire had been exchanged between adjoining white and black neighborhoods. The guardsmen came under fire from both sides, and an ex-serviceman named Willer, who had volunteered to join the guard unit, was seriously wounded by a white gunman. At dawn, a force of citizens, police, and members of the National Guard, numbering perhaps 1,500, moved into Greenwood from the south and west, under orders to take into protective custody unarmed blacks and to subdue any who resisted. To people in Greenwood, it looked more like an invading army. It then dawned upon us that the enemy had organized in the night and was invading our district, the same as, as the Germans invaded France and Belgium, wrote Mary Jones Parrish, a Greenwood resident who recorded her experience and those of some of her neighbors in a pamphlet called Events of the Tulsa Disaster. Authorities still operating on the premise of a Negro uprising maintained they wanted to get control of Greenwood, not destroy it, but they failed on both counts. Most Greenwood residents surrendered peacefully or fled northward. Many were hidden by employers or other acquaintances and sometimes even total strangers. The few who stayed 
behind to fight were overwhelmed. The National Guard reported engaging in several short skirmishes as it moved down from Standpipe Hill. The hill just west of the present Oklahoma State University Tulsa campus and one longer battle in which about 50 blacks fought like tigers. The last organized resistance came from gunmen in the Mount Zion Baptist Church Tower when they refused to come out. The new church, valued at $80,000, was set on fire. Along the Frisco tracks, Major Charles Daly and about 25 men were trying to hold back an angry horde of perhaps a thousand. Daly said he repeatedly sent for help from the police, but was told they were busy elsewhere. Finally, the crowd broke away from Daly, and the invasion of the Negro district began. As Tulsa's black population was rounded up and taken to detention centers at the convention hall, which is known present day as Brady Theater, McNuckley Park, which is also known as 10th Street and Elgin Avenue today, and later the fairgrounds, which is also known as today as Admiral Boulevard and Lewis Avenue. Looters and vandals descended on the Greenwood District, setting fires and stealing and destroying residents' possessions. Some of those involved were the very people who were supposed to bring order to the chaos. Among them were the special deputies appointed during the night by Atkinson. So was the Home Guard, a militia organized during World War I to replace National Guard units called to active duty. During the war, the Home Guard singled out and terrorized those it deemed insufficiently supportive of the war effort. It also took action against those it considered immoral. Although officially disbanded in 1919, members of the Home Guard apparently put on their old uniforms and waded into the fray on the morning of June 1st, 1921. Most people like myself stayed in their homes, expecting momentarily to be given protection by the Home Guards or state troops, said Mary Jones Parish. Instead of protection by the Home Guards, they joined in with the hoodlums in shooting at good citizens' homes. Tulsa police also seem to have been involved in the mayhem. More than one witness identified officers, usually out of uniform, among the arsonists. B.B. Bostick, a black deputy sheriff, was roosted from his home by a white traffic officer named Pittman, who then joined in setting fire to Bostick's house. I.J. Buck, a white Greenwood property owner, said a policeman turned him aside when Buck tried to save one of his buildings. He said, you ain't got no business building buildings for Negroes, Buck testified in court. After the homes vacated, said one Greenwood resident, one bunch of whites would come in and loot. Even women with shopping bags would come in, open drawers, take every kind of finery from clothing to silverware and jewelry. Men were carrying out the furniture, cursing as they do so, saying these damn Negroes have better things than lots of white people. Fire soon consumed Greenwood's main business district and more than 1,100 homes. Only a few houses, one or two churches on the perimeter of the community, and Booker T. Washington High School survived. Nothing, the Tulsa World's Tom Loda wrote the next day, that the mind is capable of conceiving permits a word of defense or excuse for the murderous vandalism inflicted on Greenwood. Take it from an interview conducted by locals trying to piece together any witness accounts from that day of June 1st, 1921 of the Tulsa Greenwood Massacre is a survivor where she gives her account of what she witnessed that tragic day. Would you mind, first of all, telling me your full name and how it's spelled to make sure I have it right? L. Doris, E-L-D-O-R-I-S, that's all together. E-L-D-O-R-I-S? May, M-A-E. Then Mac Condishy, M-C-C-O-N-D-I. And is it North? Yes, C-O-N-D-I. 
H I E. And how old are you? 88. That's amazing. It is amazing. Okay. You don't look mm -mm. And have you lived in Tulsa all your life? Well, since I was four. All right, and um, so you you were how old at the time of the riot? Nine years old. What'd your family do? What? What did your family do for a living? Oh, they time? were just uh, common workers. My mother worked out, and my father did work at. Uh, it was a Kennedy's golf course then, and and that's where he used to work. And years ago, they had to do the greens, and he was out there on the field. He used to call them dragging the green to keep them so they could play golf. Mm -hmm. And my mother did housework. Did you did you live um, in or near the Greenwood area? No, Greenwood area. Uh -huh. Oh yes. Where'd you live in relation to the business district? Um, I live right. Well, almost in this area, my house is over the track down. Pine, you don't know where they, but anyway, Pine is the main street here, mm -hmm. and um, we were right over the track on Iroquois, mm -hmm. and that's the first little street, and my house seemed, might, might have been kind of even with this one over the, on the other side of the track. Mm -hmm. So what do you remember of the day of the riot? Do you remember what you were doing that day? Yes, um, the day of the riot, we were running. We were uh, the people. I looked my mother when I was awakened by my mother. I was real frightened because she told me what was happening, and I couldn't imagine that. I just said to her, I, I just got up and was real afraid. And she says, "We have to go out, get out." I said, "She says the, the white people are killing the colored people," and I just felt that I could see them just lining us up, just going down the line too. But anyway, it, it wasn't that bad, but we had in the Millen Valley track was just lined with people going north. And some were in the head rags, old gowns, because they didn't have any time to get dressed to get out. Even some women left their shoes and was just walking down the track no shoes on, and it was the the crowd was just the whole breadth of the railroad track on the sides and down the middle, and they were all going north because it couldn't go south. And so we went um, right over the track off Pine was a small chicken coop, and a lot of people went in there because the bullets were just raining down over us. Airplanes was up, just raining down the bullets, and I could see them, and I heard them, and I was so frightened, I pulled away from my parents and ran into this chicken coop with all the other people, and I got into the corner of that, just scared as I could be. But my father came in there, and I had to leave out with him so I could stay with my family. So that was it, and I don't know, some little town going north on the, the Million Valley track. Uh, the, there was a farmer there, very nice, he was white, and he said, as many of you people can come into our uh, 
can come into the, get into this house because he had had two houses. The first one he lived in, then he had built another one. He says, as many of you can come in and stay as long, you know, until. So we stayed there overnight. Excuse me, where was that? This is, I, don't, I can't remember the town, but we went to Pahaska from there. Walking. Still going on. I, with the next morning, I know we didn't walk, but I can't remember how my mother, my brother, and myself got to Pahaska. But we went there and stayed for two or three days until the all clear sound was made here. And so we came back home. Do you remember, one of the things we've been talking about a lot um, is the role of authority figures in the riot, that it wasn't just hoodlums and, and ruffians, but some of the, can, do you remember at the age of nine what the role of authority figures seemed to be? The authority figures, they were the men who, the businessmen, is that what you mean? Business leaders Business of Tulsa. leaders of Tulsa, yes, and Greenwood. Greenwood was just our our street, our town, all the, the Negroes just had access to Greenwood. Our businesses were there. We had our doctors, our lawyers, our undertakers. All of the businessmen were down on Greenwood, just say from uh, Cameron on back to Archer. But it was further than that. Some was up and in our schools. Uh, Booker T. Washington was a high school, and um, we had a school, Dunbar, it was a grade school, and it was down on Eastern, a little two-story red brick, Dunbar, and um, they were all blown up. Churches all over in that area, from, say, um, Eastern, right on down. It seemed like the, 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 and the teachers who lived on Detroit, up the hill, their homes were just blown apart. And so the, the better business of the business people who really made the town what it was. And of course, the, we, my parents helped too, but it was in a small area. But it was just, uh, that was it. When, so what time did your mother wake you up? Was it at night? No, it was in the morning. Um, I didn't tell this before, but I had been staying with my cousin about two doors down from our house. I had been sleeping down there at night, and I don't remember why now, but I would go home in the morning. So the evening of the riot, I went down there, and um, I said to my cousin, I said, I'm going home, and I'll be back in a few minutes. I did not get back. I went home and went to sleep. And I didn't know anything until my mother was waking me the next morning. So she woke you up in the morning and people had been mm -hmm. rioting all night long? Yeah, people had, uh, yeah, and the track was just full of people. And all I could see was black rolling smoke down south and the people going north. And when she, she woke you up, she woke you up and she said that the white people are killing the colored people. Mm -hmm. Your first reaction was to envision it very clearly, not to say why. Is, did that reflect what those times were like? Did it surprise you that such a thing would happen? Uh, no, I, 
I guess I was more afraid, too afraid to be surprised. I guess I'll put it that way because I woke up just ready to run and it was hard for them to keep me at, at that age. I knew I should have stayed with my parents, but just trying to get out of the way. But in those days, I mean, did it did it seem perfectly possible that such a thing could happen sooner or later, or was it just, I mean, would it have been as strange if the birds came down from the trees and attacked you? At, at nine years old, you know, I had no thoughts of that because of the, anything that happened like that. We were just all out here peacefully living and downtown seemed to be anything, but it just seemed to happen overnight mm -hmm. uh, downtown. And I didn't know until I was at the meeting that the race riot really started at night, but we had the first day of June, 1921. Mm -hmm. And that's when we were all involved. We know we woke up running, mm -hmm. and we couldn't go back south at all. The people out on that end, and I guess say downtown from maybe uh, Independence on out north. And what do you remember of the airplanes? You said the bullets were raining down from above. Mm. Tell me what you remember of that. I just remember seeing them up there and seeing the bullets, hearing them as they dropped and seeing some of them. Do you remember seeing white policemen or white, any sort of white people in uniform or anyone trying to control things at all? No, not, no. Everybody was fighting and the Negroes were on the run until um, it was all peace was declared and then. And you knew that because of the, the all clear siren? All clear, not, no, no, no. We didn't hear the siren, we were in Pahuska, but we got the word that it was all clear. And then we were on, we did have curfew when I got back and the National Guard was here to guard us. Um, oh, wow. What did it look like when you came back? Um, down, well, on Greenwood, the deep Greenwood, mm -hmm. it was just the sound of just bricks, stones, buildings blown up. You just, just the uh, war torn heights. The most prominent Tolson killed in the riot was Dr. A.C. Jackson a 40-year-old surgeon living at 523 North Detroit Avenue. According to Jackson's white neighbor, former police commissioner and retired judge John Oliphant, Jackson has ra had raised his hands to surrender to a group of whites when two of them shot Jackson dead in what Oliphant called cold-blooded murder. Born in Memphis and raised in Guthrie, where his father was a law officer, Jackson graduated from Harry Medical College in Nashville, practiced for a while in Tulsa and Claremore, then trained as a surgeon in Memphis. His work was such that he attracted the attention of the Mayo brothers, and in 1919 he returned to Tulsa as a specialist in chronic diseases and surgery for women. Jackson lived on what was one of the most exclusive blocks in all of Greenwood. His neighbors included Booker T. Washington High School principal E.W. Woods, Tulsa star publisher A.J. Smitherman, and physician R.T. Bridgewater. Why Jackson, one of the gentlest of men, would have been singled out is not known. Perhaps he was mistaken for the more outspoken Smitherman or Bridgewater, 
Perhaps he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. The riot had all but died down, Oliphant said, when Jackson came walking toward me with his hands in the air. Here am I. I want to go with you, he said. A body of about seven men, all armed, intercepted him, and two young fellows fired on him. He fell to the ground, and one of the men fired again. Jackson's killers were never identified. By mid-morning on June 1st, the violence and destruction were beginning to subside. Tulsa-based National Guardsmen, soon reinforced by units from Oklahoma City, Bartsville, and other communities, began securing the Greenwood area. At 11.15 a.m., Governor J.B.A. Robertson declared martial law with Adjutant General Charles Barrett in command. Some looting continued, though, through the afternoon. Until by evening, about 30 whites had been arrested for pillaging. According to some accounts, the Oklahoma City units, which included a machine gun company, were involved in the final attack on Mount Zion Baptist Church. This is not mentioned in any of the officers' action reports and seems unlikely since those troops did not arrive until 9.30 a.m., by which time the church was already on fire. A lawyer and former newspaper publisher who had served in the Oklahoma House and Senate, Barrett had limited military experience but was a fair administrator. He issued a number of field orders, some of which have since been misinterpreted. For instance, Barrett temporarily banned all funerals in downtown churches. Over time, this was seen as an attempt to keep blacks from burying their dead. In fact, it had almost no effect on black funerals since those would not have been held in the downtown white churches. The purpose of the ban was to keep grieving white families from coming into contact with blacks still staying in some downtown churches. Barrett also ordered a mortrium on property transfers in Greenwood. This was to head off speculation and force sales. Martial law was eased on June 2nd and lifted altogether at 5 p.m. on June 3rd. By midday on June 1st, Greenwood had been emptied of all but a handful of its inhabitants. A few found refuge in downtown churches or the homes of white employers, acquaintances, and even strangers. Fewer still somehow rode out the riot in their own homes. The majority by far had either fled the city or been taken into what was described as protective custody. They were forced to march for blocks through the white neighborhoods with their hands in the air while their homes and possessions burned behind them. The detainees were subject to harassment and humiliation. Some were robbed of whatever valuables they had managed to stuff in their pockets. They were taken first to the convention hall, now which is known as Brady Theater. It soon proved inadequate, and McNuckley Park, the local minor league baseball stadium at 10th Street and Elgin Avenue, was put into service. Finally, in the afternoon, the detainees were transported to the fairgrounds at Admiral Boulevard and Luis Avenue. Through the afternoon and into the next day, National Guard patrols went out into the countryside to pick up Greenwood residents. Some had gotten as far as Claremore and Bartsville. A few made it all the way to Kansas City. A good many simply kept going and never looked back. Detainees were given food, water, and medical attention that first day. The black hospital had been burned, so a makeshift clinic for injured blacks was set up at the National Guard Armory. Major Paul Brown, a Tolson physician and commanding officer of the sanitary detachment, then commandeered beds in white hospitals for the most serious cases. 
Many detainees were released within hours, while others remained at the fairground camp for weeks. Generally, detainees were held until a white person vouched for them, at which point they were given a card to wear on their clothes. Those without cards were subject to arrest. Those with nowhere else to go were allowed to stay at the fairgrounds camp, regardless of whether or not they had been released. At its heights, the camp housed about 5,000 people. Those who remained were required to pay for their meals, either out of their own pockets or by working at various tasks, including cleaning up the debris in Greenwood. For this, they were paid standard laborer's wage. It was by no means an easy existence, but some whites soon complained that blacks were being spoiled at the fairgrounds and by the attention given them by the Red Cross and other charitable organizations. The next bit of audio that you're going to hear is conducted from another interview with a different survivor of the Black Wall Street Massacre or the Greenwood Massacre in June 1st, 1921. She speaks about some of the things she saw during the riots and fairly about what she endured as she was living in the fairgrounds. Uh, what was it like living in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma at that time? And tell us especially what happened the day of that riot. Well, being a little girl, it was, uh, I was frightened, I was scared. And uh, we had to get out of the way. And there were airplanes flying in the sky that uh, seemed to have been dropping something down to the houses and setting them on fire. And of course we had to run to try to stay out of their way. And because we didn't want to get burned. And so we just uh, kept running and uh, we were trying to get to an area where the Golden Gate Park was and go out there and hide. And we finally made it out there. My mother and uh, about uh, two or three of my sisters and brothers were ducking and dodging and running to get to the Golden Gate Park. That's what uh, the park was called at that time. And we finally made it out there. And uh, when the planes would fly over, we would see them dropping something to the rooftops of the different houses and setting them on fire. And of course, we were crying and running and doing things like that. And uh, we finally got out of their way and found somewhere to hide. Do you remember what you were doing? Uh, was it uh, night when it happened? Some people said they started to flee in the middle of the night. Others said it was early the next morning. Well, it was, as far as I know, it was at night when they started. But uh, we would, uh, we didn't get out of our house until early the next morning. And they would tell us to stay away from the windows because they were shooting in the windows and things like that. And uh, we would run and try to survive. Did, did you uh, see anyone get shot? Some survivors had relatives shot dead right by them. No. You didn't see anyone? No, I'm so thankful that I oh, didn't I experience anything like that. But uh, 
we saw the one or two planes flying over and looked like they would drop something from the plane to the roof of a house. And we saw the houses that were burning, there was smoke and things like that. Now, where did you, uh, you went straight to one of these shelters, convention hall, and, and the park. What, what did you all do? Some people slept, they said slept out in the open that night. Did somebody come and get you? No, we ran. You ran to Golden we ran, Park? We ran, we, we ran in groups. Uh -huh. And uh, we'd uh, hide behind uh, trees and things like that. And uh, we finally made it out to the Golden Gate Park. That's okay. what it was called at uh -huh. that time. Did somebody, some of the troops, you remember seeing any of the troops, the soldiers? The, the soldiers were on their way, uh -huh. but I don't remember seeing them. Uh -huh. When you, uh, your house was burned, when you first came back, when did you see where your house used to be and, and how did you feel? Did you lose? I've heard people say what hurt them the most, they like a prom dress that burned up <laughs> or their dolls. Or, right. Yeah, so what, what did it feel like to be homeless? It was uh, awful. And uh, we, uh, we went to the Golden Gate Park, and we were supposed to stay out there, but uh, it seemed like where they had places to stay were filled up by the time uh, my family and I got around to it. So uh, we seemed like we walked back to the basement of somebody's church. I don't remember what church it might have been. And I stayed there that night. But my mother was able to keep uh, the five children together. And uh, my father was out uh, helping them. And I don't know what he was doing. But uh, he was supposed to have been helping to keep us, keep them from shooting us. And I didn't see any shooting or anything like that. But I did see houses burning. And uh, we saw them trying to set uh, one of the churches on fire and it wouldn't burn. I don't remember what church it was. But uh, we survived and seemed like we spent our first night in a school room, one of the schools. And uh, we, the family, my mother and I, and uh, my sister and brother. But uh, my father was out uh, on the streets helping them to rescue the rest of us. And that's about all I remember. Although the destruction of Greenwood was generally condemned by black and white Tolsons alike, overall blame was quickly assigned to the blacks who had gone to the courthouse to protect Dick Rowland. The true death toll will probably never be known. 37 death certificates were issued for riot-related fatalities, but most experts believe that the total was higher, perhaps much higher. Hundreds and perhaps thousands were injured. 
property damage in Greenwood was put at 1.5 million to 2 million at a time when a good house could be built for less than $1,000. According to the Red Cross, 1,256 homes were burned and another 215 looted but not completely destroyed. Of the 37 death certificates, 25 were from black males and 12 for white males. Nine black victims burned beyond recognition were not identified. Two other deaths are sometimes included in the confirmed total, a stillborn black infant found during the riot and a white male shot several days later when he drove through a checkpoint on the outskirts of town. The number of the dead and injured has been the subject of controversy from the very start. Early on, local papers reported 100 dead, then scaled its estimate back to 30, saying some bodies had been counted twice and others thought dead were only injured. A grand jury convened the second week of June, said the armed blacks at the courthouse were the direct cause of the riot, but said indirect causes were more to blame. Among the indirect causes cited were agitation for social equality and lax law enforcement. 88 indictments were issued, mostly for black men, but few seemed to have been served. A few people arrested during and after the riot were convicted of pleaded guilty to minor crimes such as possession of stolen property. Immediately after the riot, a group of white businessmen proposed moving the black neighborhood further to the northeast and converting the Greenwood area to a warehouse district. This effort ultimately failed when the business group could not raise the necessary capital. In September, Tulsa County's three district judges ruled the city had illegally extended its fire code and attempted to thwart blacks from rebuilding. The decision effectively ended the real estate group's scheme. The group's efforts, though, helped feed suspicions of conspiracy and cover-up. Some have suggested that the entire incident, including the encounter between Dick Rowland and Sarah Page, had been staged to provide an excuse to lay waste to Greenwood. They point to the actions or inaction of authorities during the buildup to the riot and failure to protect Greenwood property on the morning of June 1st. There were also claims that the blacks who went to the courthouse wanted a fight. According to later testimony and notes found in the papers of Governor J.B.A. Robertson, hotel owner John Stratford had exhorted the men at the Tulsa office with the promise to send and get the Muscogee crowd, that is, reinforcements for the nearby city of Muscogee. The African Blood Brotherhood, an armed of the Communist Party base in New York, claimed to have had a chapter in Tulsa, organizing armed resistance to racial oppression. Stratford and Smitherman were arrested after the riot, but posted bail and left Oklahoma forever. Stratford settled in Chicago where his family became prominent. Smitherman opened a newspaper in Buffalo, New York. In July, a jury found police chief John Gustafson guilty of declaration of duty and removed him from office. He resumed his career as a private investigator. There were no convictions for any of the charges related to the violence. The city settled into an uneasy peace, and decades of virtual silence about the events began. It was not recognized in the Tulsa Tribune feature of 15 years ago today or 25 years ago today. A number of people tried to document the events, gather photographs, and record the names of the dead and injured. Mary E. Jones Parrish, a young black teacher and journalist from Rochester, New York, was hired by the Interracial Commission to write an account of the riot. 
Parrish was a survivor and wrote about her experiences and collected other accounts, gathered photographs, and compiled a partial roster of property losses in the African-American community. She published these events of the Tulsa disaster. It was the first book to be published about the riot. The first academic account was a master's thesis written in 1946 by Lorne L. Gill, a veteran of World War II, but the thesis did not circulate beyond the University of Tulsa. In 1971, a small group of survivors gathered for a memorial service at Mount Zion Baptist Church with blacks and whites in attendance. That same year, the Tulsa Chamber of Commerce decided to commemorate the riot, but when they read the accounts and saw photos gathered by Ed Wheeler, host of a radio history program, detailing the specifics of the riot, they refused to publish them. He then took his information to the two major newspapers in Tulsa, both of which also refused to run his story. His article was finally published in Impact Magazine, a new publication aimed at black audiences, but most of Tulsa's white residents never knew about it. In the early 1970s, along with Henry C. Withlow Jr., a history teacher at Booker T. Washington High School named Mozella Franklin Jones, had not only helped to desegregate the Tulsa Historical Society, but had mounted the first ever major exposition on the history of African Americans in Tulsa. Moreover, she had also created at the Tulsa Historical Society the first collection of massacre photographs available to the public. While researching and sharing the history of the riot, Jones collaborated with a white woman named Ruth Sigler, Avery, who was also trying to publicize the accounts of the riot. The woman encountered pressure, particularly among whites, to keep silent. Over the years, there has been controversy over the Greenwood Massacre not being mentioned or widely known to the public, some believing that we should not remember such a dark time in history. I, along with others, believe that we were, if we were to just erase that tragic event from history, it would be more devastating. So great, the episode's finally done. If you made it this far and you're actually listening to this right now, give yourself a pat on the back because you actually sat through all my blunders and all my little mess-ups and stuff that I had when I did this episode. So I finally got the episode out. Thank you guys for being so patient. I appreciate every one of you who actually took the time to get this far and actually sit through me talking. <laughs> I'm just surprised. Uh, anyways, so I'm glad that I finally got this episode out. If you never knew about it, uh, maybe you did know about it. Maybe you're from Tulsa, Oklahoma, or you're just from Oklahoma in general, and you never knew about it. Um, that's cool. Maybe you learned something different. If not, maybe you found some tidbits of information that you actually didn't even know about the riot. Um, thank you to the Tulsa Star, I mean the Tulsa World, for providing this information to me. But also... I want to give my opinion on this. I do believe that the information that is provided is kind of um, biased in a sense. It doesn't... Because doing the research for the actual episode, I found other accounts. And throughout all the information of... I just read more from the... I got a good chunk and majority of my information from the Tulsa world where I got a lot of the timeline because they actually did a timeline of the events. Um, so they kind of give a rundown of when it began. Uh, 
the stuff proceeding after the riot died down and everything. Uh, so that was really cool. But to be honest with you, um, all the other research that I found that was provided from survivor accounts, from people who claim to have seen what actually happened, the Tulsa world never actually, in any of the information provided, did it mention about the airplanes. There were airplanes that... <clears throat> flew over the district of Greenwood, dropping napalm bombs, uh, well, makeshift napalm bombs. I believe it was nitroglycerin that they used um, to actually set other buildings ablaze. It wasn't just simply people with torches walking up to buildings. I want to say, honestly, I felt like it was a little bit biased, um, and they tried to save grace a little bit, maybe save face in the light of like, oh, well, there was some nice white people, which I'm sure there was nice white people, but the good majority of people were there because they did not like that so many African-Americans were prospering, and probably even more so than the whites living in that area, or at least near Greenwood. So I'm pretty sure that was what just the whole majority for the even the incident to occur, and just... You know, it's sad, but, you know, that's life sometimes. But uh, I'm, I hope you guys uh, found this episode informative. I know it was different. It's not necessarily a true crime like a murder. I'll get back to that uh, probably not next week, but the week after because next week's going to be um, This Week in Crime. And I chose to do this episode because I, I found just it very interesting and the fact that not a lot of, a lot of people knew about it. I know it was recently shown... Um, on the, I don't know if you watch it, but the the show um, Watchmen, the HBO series Watchmen, uh, that show actually opened with that incident occurring, um, and it it was actually a really good show. I especially liked the way they um, tackled the Tulsa riot or the Greenwood massacre, the Black Wall Street massacre. It goes by many names, but it's still just a devastating incident that happened in the dark time during um, U.S. history. So again, thank you for listening to this episode of Strange Talk Podcast. There are many podcasts out there, but you chose to listen to Strange Talk Podcast and you chose right. So if you have a topic or a case you want me to tackle, you can follow me on Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast and you can send me a DM there. Or if you want to follow my email, well not follow, but if you want to send me an email, my email is strangetalkpodcast.outlook.com. What's that email you ask again? It's strangetalkpodcast.outlook.com. So again, thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I know it was different. I hope you guys still enjoyed it and you found it to be informing and you learned something new. Again, it was in honor of Black History Month. So thank you for listening to this episode. And as always, stay strange.